Hi, and welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. Today's episode, well, I feel like I always say that each episode is special. And what I want to say about today's episode is that it's really important. And to be totally honest, I have wrestled with what to say in this intro because I think that this topic is so important. So you'll be hearing from my friend, Michelle Winston, and she talks about her experience of racism and prejudice. And I struggled with what to say in this intro because my own racial prejudices are something that I've been really trying to take a deep dive to look at lately. And so I had, you know, this idea in my mind that I need to say something like super duper important and blah, 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 blah. But then I realized that that might just be me trying to, again, center things around my whiteness rather than centering around the voice of the person of color who talks in this episode about her own experience. So instead of telling you what I think about racism and privilege and white fragility and all that kind of stuff, I'm just going to let Mishara share her experiences with you. Mishara is an adventure therapist, social health advocate, and the owner of Two Indie with Love, Adventures in Social and Emotional Health. Through speaking, therapy, and local global public experiences, she supports the audacity of play, vulnerability, and joy in the midst of chronic trauma, especially for people of color, LGBTQIA folk, and the people of diverse spiritual practice in Indianapolis, Indiana. Without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Mishara Winston. Hello, Mishara. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hey, it's me. It's you. It's us. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> so I have to tell listeners, this is the first time I've ever recorded with somebody in the same house, but <laughs> because I don't know how to do like a face-to-face interview and I also don't have all of the equipment needed, you're in my office and I'm downstairs in my closet. <laughs> When I saw like all the things like your clothes in the background, that just it, that brought mm-hmm. me joy. <laughs> I'm so glad. And we'll just tell the audience I was setting you up in my office and it's a shit show right now. There are people in town in my house and like there's just shit everywhere. And I was like, don't mind my bullshit. And she's like, isn't that our friendship? Like, that's the motto of our friendship. Don't mind my bullshit. <laughs> I forgot to tell you, you can cuss on here, too. Oh, no, that was understood. Yeah. I was hoping you didn't have an audience that was going to be like, oh, let me clutch my pearl. If they do, they're just not going to come back. And that's fine by me. And that's OK. Yeah. So do you want to describe how we met? Yeah, sure. So I was at an esteemed institution on the south side of Chicago Mm -hmm. and I was getting my master's degree in social work. And you were my second intern supervisor. Mm -hmm. So my second year of grad school, but the first person who was a therapist who Mm. I was being supervised from. So Mm -hmm. coming from like sociology and cultural anthropology, my undergrad degrees, I had never, even in my first year of social work school, had a mental health professional supervising me. So Mm. whole new game. And then you got this. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what is this? Right. Well, why don't you tell the folks who you are and what you do other than you're my former intern? So I am Mishara Winston, LCSW, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Yeah. I am the owner of Two Indie with Love, which is in Indianapolis, Indiana. And it is a social and emotional health company. So I focus on adventure therapy, creative play, experiences, and consulting and training with the idea that to play and to have joy and to have pleasure and have fun that takes a lot of audacity in the midst Mm -hmm. of chronic trauma. And so I specifically focus on center and affirm people of color, LGBTQIA plus Mm -hmm. folks, and folks who are considered to be religious or spiritual minorities in Mm. my conservative city of Indiana, which is called Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. And so that's my jam. That's what I do. Yeah. 
It's been so cool. If you don't follow To Indie With Love on Instagram yet, you should because Michelle be giving some good memes, y'all. Like, <laughs> you got to check them out. And it's just so fun to see all the events that you get to throw. And it looks like you're kind of killing it. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are an impressive person. Thank you. I just want to say that I remember the dreams that you had of doing adventure therapy. And it's just so cool how you took that idea. And so you moved back to Indiana and there's not really a lot of adventures you can have probably in the wintertime in Indiana, just like in (laughs) Chicago, but you figured out a way to make your dreams come true and expand on that, which is what's impressive to me. Thank you. One thing that I realized before I became an adventure therapist, before I knew adventure therapy was even a field and not just Mm -hmm. something made up, I realized that (laughs) like if you're doing recreation with people and you're not trying to drag information out of them that is frankly none of your business, Mm -hmm. they tend to open up and Mm -hmm. they, in my experience, became really vulnerable. So I started with like mentoring programs Mm -hmm. and I was just doing rec. And folks kept telling me their deeply personal trauma and business. Mm. And so what I figured out is that to be an adventure therapist, which I later became, I don't need to be in the woods. I don't need to be in the forest, even though I love those places. Because if you are a person who like your gender presentation as femme has not been affirmed and we do a pedicure in my studio with Too Indie With Love and we paint our Mm. nails and toes, that's an adventure. If you've been afraid to try a certain food all your life and we try alligator bites and sushi, that's an adventure. So I think there's adventure therapy that's very traditional. It's like we're going to climb the Grand Canyon. But that takes some access and makes some assumptions about ability make some Mm -hmm. assumptions about age and money Mm -hmm. and who's cash poor and who's not. And my folks that I really wanted to touch, they don't always have the privilege to be able to like go to the freaking Redwoods, which are dope. Like what can we do in the middle of the hood? And Mm. so that's the type of adventure that I care about. And also just being vulnerable when society tells you, keep your guards up and like respectability at all costs. That's an adventure to be mm-hmm. brave enough to be vulnerable. So winter, spring, summer, I don't care because like mm-hmm. life is an adventure and we can always make some sort of adventure therapy out of it. You're just so full of joy. And I think it's funny, even when you're not feeling joyful, like the conversation that we had the other night, I remember Michelle <laughs> calls me and she's like driving and she's like, I'm about to die. I'm so hungry. And you were like, you were bitchy for you, but it was so sunshiny for me to like receive. I was like, this is kind of amazing. So I just, you're just a very, you're really a special light in the world. That's what made you such a pleasure to supervise is just that light. I just can see people really being drawn to you. And of course, they're going to tell you their deep, dark, dirty secrets because you're safe. Thank you. I remember once someone said, I don't think they were a therapy client because I wouldn't be like out in their words, but Mm -hmm. someone said, you make me feel safe enough to make mistakes. And that really touched me. We're struggling, struggle bussing folk, like therapists and mm-hmm. non-therapists. So what's the fucking point in like the facade? Like truly, yeah. <laughs> who was it helping? Not I. <laughs> right. And I mean, that's one of the things I talk about on the podcast all the time is like our culture as Americans is just we're doing it wrong in so many ways. And that's that's one of the things is like not having the freedom of authenticity to like really be ourselves and like, oh, you're supposed to focus on X, Y, Z, graduating from college and getting married and having children and and getting a great job and making money. That's what success looks like. And that is fucking killing people. Yes. It's so ridiculous. We end up with all these trappings that this colonized country tells us Mm -hmm. are important. And then we're like in our forties, our fifties, and we've got these great things and we want to kill ourselves. And Mm -hmm. that's like the dirty little secret is that your mental health does not give a shit how great your fashion sense is, even though, you know, Mm -hmm. I live for, for great style, (laughs) but like, and you pull it off so well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But like, 
I don't think that supports this country's Mm-mm. mindset of like work, 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 work with this carrot of a dollar sign in front of right. you that only some people have, but the rest of us are just like expected mm-hmm. to work until we die. And if we're always in survival mode, we never have to think about what brings me pleasure and what brings me mm-hmm. joy and how do I feel? It's like, no, let's just think it through. But I'm like, fuck that shit. Let's feel it through. Right. What feels good? Well, and you mentioning some folks that you work with don't have the privilege to do that. And that's probably most people, I'd say. I think the middle class is certainly suffering right now. And if, the you know, when the middle class is suffering, then people start paying attention, you know? Exactly. <laughs> but everyone else is like, hello, I've been here suffering for quite a while now. Quite a while. It's so great that this finally is making the news like, oh, mm-hmm. apparently it's not affordable to live in America. It's like, well... <laughs> Apparently, who knew? There's literally a $4 million home down the street from me. I'm like, thank God my husband owns property. Otherwise, I couldn't fucking afford the place that I live in. That's real. Yes. That's real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I feel like this might be a good place to transition. I know you had a piece that you wanted to read, and I feel like talking about the culture and privilege and all that kind of stuff, this might be a good segue into that. Sounds good. So when I was a wee lass in undergrad, I realized that since people kept telling me all their stuff while we were having fun, that Mm -hmm. I wanted to come to graduate school so that I could get the fancy credentials Mm -hmm. and the letters behind my name to do what I was already fucking doing. Exactly. I know. (laughs) Like, Let's go to more student loan debt to prove that I have the right to do what I've been doing for free for a while. That said, my institution, I picked it not because it was the best. It's a big deal for other people, but Growing up, I, well, little known fact, you know this, Sarah, but I was raised in a religious cult that did Mm -hmm. not approve of higher education. So growing (gasps) up- I didn't know they didn't approve. That doesn't make sense, but go on. Well, because to have higher education means to consider that ambition is not a sin. And if ambition- Oh, yuck, it do. Also, in higher education, you might start developing critical thinking skills and you might have freedom of thought and expression, which is really a sword to the heart of the cult because you cannot be controlled and you can't be fear mongered if you're thinking for yourself. And if you're reading books and listening to music that hasn't been cult approved. I love this voice I'm using right now. Right. (laughs) That literally makes me sick to my stomach. That didn't occur to me. But the way you explain it is like, oh, yeah, duh. If you're too smart, you're going to be like, peace, I'm out of here. (laughs) Right. So getting into the school that I got to, I wasn't like, oh, this is a big deal. One of my mentors said, oh, you got into that school? Well, shit, honey, go. Like that's Mm. where people of color were broke as hell. Like Mm -hmm. go to that school. It Mm. will help you survive in the world basically. And so I chose the school. I got into a few, but I chose that school because it gave me the biggest scholarship. And so there Mm. I am unimpressed with like these (laughs) things that other people are telling me are a big deal. Yeah, I could just see your face like, Mm-hmm. <laughs> my attitude, like it's a, it's a wonder oh, that people man. were willing to be my friend because my attitude <laughs> was just like, this is a bunch of bullshit, but y'all seem to like it. Oh, man. And so I wrote about what it was like to be a black student sitting in these classrooms in this institution that apparently I was supposed to be impressed by mm-hmm. and not being impressed by it and, and just mm. really thinking about oh crap, like I've got a real life outside of this institution. And it was really refreshing when I then in my second year got to have you as a supervisor because I felt like I could be honest about who I was as a person. Mm -hmm. I wasn't completely at the point of being able to talk openly with myself or you or another person about all the trauma that I had Mm -hmm. experienced. But it's like I brought my personhood, my trauma, my gifts, my talents. Mm -hmm. But I was also dealing with the bullshit that is being a person of color or a queer person or a non-Christian person Mm -hmm. or a non-cis person Mm -hmm. or a non-middle class person in these institutions 
that Mm -hmm. the standard for professionalism, and I have that word in quotes, air quotes, the standards for professionalism are really white European culture. So when it comes to what means being on time down to what do you wear to a job interview? Mm -hmm. How do you speak? How big should your earrings be? Let's not wear Mm -hmm. bright colors. All of that Mm -hmm. that we call professionalism is really just whiteness. And it's exhausting. And And fucking boring. It's boring as shit. Wow. Like it can dry out the Sahara. It's so dry. And so Mm -hmm. I'm like, I remember saying to a professor, he asked us to write one day in grad school. His name was Jeff Levy. He's one of my favorite professors. Oh, yes. And he really encouraged me to focus on adventure therapy. Even if Mm. the school didn't offer it, he was like, you fucking do that shit. Like you make Mm. yourself happy. And so I did for independent study, but he asked us to write like, Let's talk about the process of being in this room, in this classroom, what's coming up for you. And Mm. I wrote this paper. I was like, well, thank you for allowing me to be honest and like take off the mask Mm. that I have to wear as a person of color to survive the whiteness of this colonized land. Mm. And what I said is, I'm so tired of being in group discussions where people talk around the subject. So they're using language and dialect that I don't understand, Hmm. but apparently is polite to them. Mm. And so it's letting me know that I'm not the intended regular person who's supposed to be engaging here. Mm. It was like this thing where people would say, and these were mostly white people because my institution was very, very white. Yeah. But when a question was asked or when someone had an idea and we're supposed to speak up and be leaders and comment back, folks would say, Well, you know, I just, um, so maybe we could, I don't know, like, this isn't terrible, but like, I just, um, well, (laughs) so, and it was these sentences that just trailed off Hmm. without ever having to speak directly. Hmm. And as a black woman, I found it unnerving because I could never tell what is the point of the sentence? And also, where do I stand? It felt very unsafe, even when Mm. people weren't talking directly to me. It was a, what I now could call a passive form of communication, where you never give a strong point. Instead, you just talk around a subject. And so I was used to direct and active communication Mm. and to be jumping around, never making a clear point, not really ever having an opinion felt dangerous to me as a black woman. So I wrote about that. I was like, I don't understand this way of talking around subjects instead of speaking directly. And it makes me feel afraid, but also like in the hood, you would never, you would (laughs) never Mm. jump around these subjects, like say what the fuck you're saying, please. Mm. Not as a form of aggression, but as a form of respect. Like you look people in their eyes, you say what it is that you're trying to say, Mm -hmm. and you wait on direct response. And that active direct communication was what I was used to because of my culture and being in a new Mm. institution. It was considered polite to be what I also called passive aggressive. Like, say what you feel, please. Mm -hmm. So that is a white people disease. If ever I've known one. (laughs) <laughs> it was driving me crazy mm-hmm. and I just didn't understand it and didn't even mm-hmm. know how to write it in the paper. I was like, what's driving me crazy is people don't speak directly here. Mm. And you are acting like this is professional, aka it might be since the standard for professional is whiteness. But like also, can we please speak directly? Like how are we going into a profession that's about communication and you can't even be non-passive aggressive in your speech? I don't want these lessons. And so- Two or three years ago, I'm sitting in Indianapolis. This is after I've moved back. And I started writing about the lessons that I got in graduate school Mm -hmm. as a Black person. And so that's what I'm happy to share about today. Yeah, please. All right. So let's get into it. It says, challenges of being a Black student in social work school. God be with me, for this is my syllabus. One, learning about my community from people who are not even honorary members of it. Reading about my community from authors who do not share it. Two, knowing not to point this out or my lived experience could become a classroom debate 
and white fragility Mm. would win. Three, seeing Republicans as perpetrators and seeing Democrats as heroes and victims, Mm. therefore unable to see in the mirror the actions enabled and perpetuated by this social work school. Mm. Four, student populations of, quote, servants' hearts, unquote, who are less than 10% of the demographic they will, quote, serve, Mm -hmm. end quote. But we don't talk about that. Five, my fellow classmates noting that there are few men of color in the social work school and wondering why that is. (laughs) I could tell you, Mm -hmm. but it would disrupt your view of yourself and that would put me at risk. Mm -hmm. Six, I just need to graduate. And you have no idea that your friendly social work peer of color knows that she must survive in your presence until you fulfill the burden of proof that she does not. Mm. Seven, I am not scared of you. Eight, but I am. Because I know that you have power that you can't see, you won't see, you choose not to see, you get to not see. Power that every student of color can see. Everyone, everyone, everyone but you. Your tears and your hurt feelings would be more powerful than the experiences of every student of color in this classroom, more powerful than every professor of color, every professional of color, every president of university of color, and apparently every president of the country of color. Mm -hmm. That's how powerful and dangerous it is for you to cry and say your feelings were hurt. Come on now. Your ignorance is your bliss. Your good intentions are your bliss. Your ability to see yourself as only a hero or only a victim Mm. is your bliss. And it is my grave danger. Nine, ignorance of groups who are in need of support until their struggle becomes stylish and therefore fundable. Not listening telling groups what their experience is, not listening, calling groups at risk and disadvantage, but never calling ourselves overly privileged and unequally powerful because that would be telling the truth. 10, talking over groups, but having the nerve to call them voiceless, speaking for them while interrupting them, giving opinions instead of giving ears, leading their journey instead of ever following their leadership, becoming an expert, but never an actual listener. 11, checking everyone but ourselves as the social work heroes, being checked and not believing, having the unmitigated gall and the privilege, the safety privilege to say, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree with another person's lived experience One year in, I'm not blaming you. I'm asking you to look in the mirror as I have, as I must, as I will, and as I do, look in the mirror Mm -hmm. and practice doing it without the shame that can cripple us all. 13, spreading the word on our work while using savior and colonizer lingo. Mm -hmm. Bending down to help instead of lifting people up to amplify them. Mm. 14, watching my fellow students discover for the first time in their lives that equality isn't real. And me actually having to go into student loan debt to pay for this, quote, education, (laughs) unquote. Mm. Witnessing their surprise at the thriving of the, quote, disadvantaged, unquote and actually being praised for loving myself while Black. 15, we are teaching people to gain resiliency while perpetuating the idea that their brokenness is more fixable than the systems that break them. Mm. 16, we are benefiting from those same systems. This is ego that ignores Mm -hmm. its ignore ants. 17, racial profiling in the social work school unaddressed on the campus unaddressed, Mm. in the neighborhood unaddressed, in this city unaddressed, Mm -hmm. in this country unaddressed, on this continent unaddressed, 
but during the social work Holocaust lesson of World War II addressed. <laughs> Yay, just barely. <laughs> just barely. 18, celebrating founders with white women's privilege with white women who have white women's privilege and knowing that I am not safe to point out this irony. 19, still waiting on a, quote, safe space, unquote, to do so. Mm. 20 months later, graduation day. Whew, thank God. Upon which every non-European name will be mispronounced from a stage in a microphone in front of hundreds of people. I'm not bitter. I'm just speaking aloud what so many of us of color say in public with our eyes, but only to each other, and what we say in private with our mouths, but only to each other, because you are not safe, but you have made yourself in charge of making all the, quote, safe spaces. Mm -hmm. And to point this out is for you to immediately become the victim and refuse to take any forward steps. You will say, we just won't do anything. The passive aggression. 24 months later, whew, I made it. <laughs> and at this current moment, I don't know that in two years, there will be a social worker licensing test question on the Black community's functioning in which my answers as an actual Black person will be marked incorrect. For I am but a Black woman with a pen and the liberal so-called progressive democratic Social Workers Club of America. That's it. Holy shit, Mashera. Holy shit, indeed. <laughs> I mean, we talked about this before the interview, my fear of falling into that trap of shame, but like the intricacies of the specific things that you noted, it's like, you're right. I didn't notice any of that shit in school. Maybe two of those things on your list, but- it's so interesting. I had I had a conversation yesterday with a woman who gave me a massage and she's a black woman and she noticed my tattoos and she's like, oh, you've got chakras on your arm. And so then we got in a conversation about this idea of people being privileged enough to receive massage and Reiki. And she was mm -hmm. telling me all about the black community, like the religious thing kind of gets in the way of it and, and all this sort of stuff. And we were just talking about the privilege and she's like, I think white people see it. They just don't do anything about it. And I was like, Friend, I got to tell you, a lot of people don't, they just don't see it. And I don't know how to make it clear to people. I heard a lot of gaslighting, essentially, in mm -hmm. what you were reading is that you're like, hi, I'm having experiences. And everyone's like, oh, just pat you on your head, you sweet little strong black girl, right? Yes, you're so cute. And you smile so pretty. Yeah, honestly, I don't know what white people be thinking and what they be doing because I... <laughs> Like, I'd be so confused. Like, what yeah. is going on? But also, I don't have the lived experience of being a white person. Mm -hmm. So some days I'm like, these people just don't care. Mm -hmm. And other days I'm like, these people are really blind. And mm -hmm. other days I'm like, what shit show is this? And that yeah. I have to try to figure out, are you blind or are you apathetic? Right. And my literal life is on the line. Right. And it's like... I hear that blindness. I mean, it's every day, but in things like when a person of color, let's say it's a black person, a cis man or woman is shot and killed by police, mm -hmm. even the descriptions that people use, like an unarmed mm -hmm. black man, right. that in itself <laughs> right. is blindness. Like you have to black say that. people yeah. are allowed to be fucking armed. Right. When we think about, well, what kept the KKK from... I don't know, slaughtering black people, whether it was in Southern states or the North, because the North lives to act mm -hmm. like it did not benefit from and mm -hmm. continues to benefit from yep. the, the labor of black people and mm -hmm. their suffering and pain. <laughs> we live to be like, oh, we're in a free state. No, honey. Right. No. Let, yeah. Let's stop. Let's stop right now. But I think that in those times, there's actually a book written. I think it says this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. And it's mm. written from the perspective of like how gun ownership around of black people literally are the reasons that the Klan did not like blow up their home. They were wow. shooting 
Klan members from their porches. They were shooting them. So don't tell me mm-hmm. that we are praising black people mm-hmm. for not having weapons, for mm-hmm. for having the nerve to speak the English from England dialect mm-hmm. of this language that has been taught to us. Like, don't tell me mm-hmm. when a person of color is killed. Let's talk about what a good person they were, because yes, they were a good person, but you shouldn't have to be a good person. I should be able to be out here ratchet, cheating on my spouse, (laughs) acting a fucking fool and not be slaughtered. Right. I should be able to be annoying and be a jerk and not be dead. I shouldn't be bleeding out on the sidewalk and then have Mm -hmm. people say, oh, well, Michelle, you know, Michelle was really nice. Michelle really cared about community. Like there's this quick obituary writing Mm -hmm. that I see people doing when Black people in particular, because Black people do not have the same experiences as other POC, even though we are POC. Mm -hmm. But like when Black people in particular are killed, it's like, let me tell you about this person's character because you know their character is about to be ran through the dirt. They are literally not even in the dirt yet. They're in the morgue. But their character is being run through the dirt. And that is another example of how I see the blindness show up. It's like, this unarmed black person was killed. And it's like that phrase, we're allowed to be armed. I don't have to make straight A's. I don't have Mm -hmm. to be well liked to have the unmitigated gall and audacity to not want to be killed by employees of our, of our government and our legislative, et cetera. So yeah, I think that the blindness is just like, it's a lot of places. And I think when people Mm -hmm. say like, well, why would black people or why would Latinx people or why would trans people want a directory of therapists who are (laughs) trans or who are black, not who support black people, not people like me who are cis and support and try to be an ally for trans and non-binary folk, Mm -hmm. why would they want a directory of therapists that only have their exact lived experience? And I think Mm -hmm. it's because shit like what I just described, Black people already know that. That was common sense. That wasn't like super deep and, you know, reflective and provocative poem. Black people are like, duh, bitch. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) yeah. And so I think that To go to a therapist or to seek out a service and just want the option of having a service provider who you don't spend your money educating about your lived experience that has nothing to do with the reason you came into therapy, which might Mm -hmm. be around your bulimia, but really does have something to do with it because it's the context of your life. If they don't get that then people of color are paying, let's say your sessions are $100 a session, they're Mm -hmm. paying you $100. A person who has your lived experience is also paying that $100. But that person who doesn't, they're educating you, they're freaking working. So what do we do to address that? We charge my trans clients less than my cis clients because Mm -hmm. I'm not trans and Mm -hmm. they do have to do, I try to keep it extremely minimal, but I still am going to have blind spots. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where in the city of Indianapolis there is a non-binary or trans therapist. So they don't even get the option. They have to settle for, oh, well, she's trans affirming. That's the problem. It's part of the problem, I should say. It's like, even as a therapist who focuses on marginalized folks and is a part of a population and communities that are marginalized myself and identify that way, I still don't have these lived experiences and like have to stay humble and stay teachable Mm -hmm. without having people pay me $100 a session to like pull out a PowerPoint presentation and teach (laughs) me about their experience. Like it's just not fair. And I think when we say those things out loud, it scares folks. I think in the social work field, it's mostly white women, mostly Mm -hmm. cis, Mm -hmm. straight, white, middle-class women. And I think when we say in this field or perhaps in the United States teaching field, hey, we need to see, hire, and have more POC and more folks from marginalized community and more indigenous and Native American Mm -hmm. teachers and therapists. I think what we're also saying is give up some power and some space. Yeah. And I think what where people go is they become very afraid, like, oh, shit, are you telling me I'm not a good teacher? Are you telling me I'm right. not a therapist? Or right. 
maybe this field doesn't want me anymore. We look at our nonprofits and the majority are headed by white cis folk. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes me think, did you finish the first season of Insecure? (laughs) I didn't. My life's not together. Oh my God, you have failed. To my race. Well, let me let me tell you the episode that it felt so like alternatives to me. So for people who haven't watched it, Issa is the main character. She's a black woman. She works in a not for profit organization called We Got Y'all. And (laughs) right. Right. And they help communities of color and underserved areas, blah, 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 blah. And there's an episode where their logo comes into question, because what the logo is, is a pair of white hands holding children of color who look then happy, right? We've got to stop this shit right now. <laughs> right? Yeah. So so they start talking about it. And then the woman who founded and is the CEO of the organization, she came up with that logo and she's like, but I'm not racist. I started this to like help people. And it was, but I thought it was a brilliant way to like have that conversation and just show that's the white fragility, right? Like that's, yes. that's the shame that comes up. And I was having this conversation with somebody last night, like white people need to own because of systemic racism, because of all these things, white people are generally inherently like the bias that's in us is racist. Yeah. And what my soapbox is, I would hope that white people can create safe spaces for other white people to come out, essentially, you know? Yeah, because you shouldn't have to do it because that's the emotional labor that you've been doing your whole fucking life, right? So- and it's non-consensual. I want to interrupt right. to say yeah. that. Yeah. When we ask people of color, you know, meet me halfway, come to the table, yeah. blah, blah, yeah. blah, do 50% of this work. It reminds me of like people who have been perpetrated on and have survived, whether like if it's sexual perpetration, being asked to come to the table with folks who have benefited from that sexual perpetration. Right. It is right. so inappropriate to ask marginalized people to come do labor with people who are dangerous to them and benefit from that danger, Mm -hmm. whether they know it or it's intentional or not. And the fact that POC and other marginalized people, we do not consent. We are not asked, would you like to have to explain this thing that has to do with race? It's just expected Mm-hmm. Oh, you inspire me. So of course you'll want to come speak, usually for free. Of course you'll want to come mm, speak. Yeah, fuck that shit. <laughs> of course you, can I run an idea by you? Can I just keep using your emotional labor? And it puts marginalized mm-hmm. people in this horrible survival and trauma mindset of, no, I don't want to, but yeah. I don't get real fucking choice when you're asking me, hey, can I run something by mm-hmm. you? Hey, can you talk to our group about racism? Or I'm at coffee with a friend. Hey, can we talk about this thing that has to do with your literal trauma and mm-hmm. everyday chronic oppression? And it's like, I think targeted and marginalized folks are like, I don't get to say no, yeah. like I can, but will I suffer? Right. Will you continue to be dangerous and unsafe yeah. unless I do labor that I actually don't feel like doing? I don't get right. paid for. <laughs> right. Like this is a yeah. training that mm-hmm. you're asking for me that I have knowledge about because of trauma. It's right. not a training I went to school for. So like if the person right. is not like, hey, if they don't volunteer information about race, please stop going to targeted folk. And marginalized folk and be like, hey, can we talk about your marginalization and trauma so that I can receive enlightenment in this conversation while you afterward have to go meditate, Mm -hmm. go to a spa, except for due to systematic inequality, you can't afford those things. So you're just going to go cry in the car (laughs) because the labor, the fucking labor, man, I just, Mm -hmm. oh. (laughs) <laughs> like that struck a chord with me. Yeah, Sorry. I'm no. Like it's not sensual. Like it's not fucking consent. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting to me that for whatever reason, like this is my biggest piece of work right now in my own personal journey. And just hearing you say that I'm running through a scroll in my head of all the times I've done that. You know, and maybe I haven't done it to you, but I I bet you there are people in my history who know that I've done that. And to be able to like it is shame, right? It's shame. Once the blinders got taken off, 
And the blinders for me got taken off in grad school just to even know white privilege was a thing. Coming from Southern Ohio, it's very racist. Y'all don't know it if you're there because it's so covert. Yes. That I literally didn't know. And then now just the way that things shifted, like, I'm going to say this and don't punch me in the face later, but... I plan on punching you, but go on. God bless Donald Trump for giving us the opportunity to have these conversations. Somebody told me that white people patted ourselves on the back for electing a black president. And if Hillary would have been elected, we would have just continued the pat on the back because, look, we elected a woman president and, yeah. and all this shit would have still been happening, but we wouldn't have been talking about it. And now that the racism, I'm sorry, you were going to talk. Go for it. I was going to actually agree with you when Odu, because I mean, I would have to respect you to say your name and I won't because I don't. But when Odu, <laughs> the Cheeto you know, in charge, got the presidency, I think people had different reactions. And I stand by the fact that POC and marginalized folk can react in any emotional way that they want to without ever being silenced or police. Mm -hmm. My personal reaction was, good, this raggedy person has managed to get the presidency. Good. And the reason I thought good is because Malcolm X said something about mm. when people get angry, we can finally get some fucking change done. Yeah. And that's how I felt. I felt like, you know, good. Because mm -hmm. maybe my peers who are white people and who have privilege similar to myself, light skin privilege and mm -hmm. cis privilege and able-bodied privilege. Maybe we will stop patting ourselves on the back mm -hmm. and actually get angry because this person is about to be cruel and evil. So right. there's going to be stuff to get angry about and there's been stuff to get angry mm -hmm. about. Right. But as long as the most privileged were fairly comfortable, they could just quote right, MLK right. once a year and feel real good about themselves. And marginalized people have consistently said, I'm not safe. Yeah, I'm not safe to be alive here. Mm -hmm. And we're just like, oh, well, you know, as long as we've got a Democrat in the presidency. And it's right, like, right. it doesn't matter who's <laughs> in the presidency. Mm -hmm. That does not help my daily life as a black woman. Yeah. Like it doesn't help me. And I think that can be hard for white liberals and progressives to hear. It mm -hmm. does not help me on a daily right. basis, which Democrat you put in the presidency. I think mm -hmm. the systems that we anticipate will help people. We get to have those anticipation ideas because we're not living in their experience. We're not on those social rungs mm -hmm. that they live in that we benefit from. So we think literally any breadcrumb, any breadcrumb, we're like, oh, yeah, we're doing a good job, right? And they're like, my God, here we have another non-consensual conversation about mm -hmm. my trauma mm -hmm. where I have to make you, person with safety privilege, feel better about this action that does not translate to safety for me. It just does not. Right. I don't care if that person is in the presidency in terms of knowing that it would be so much better if that person wasn't. Do right. I care that people are harmed by his actions? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely care about that. But in terms of feeling like, oh, but if we just had another white person in the presidency who was safer, if we just had another cis mm -hmm. person in the presidency mm -hmm. who was safer, if we just throw another biracial person in the presidency, let's just throw some melanin in there. Matter mm -hmm. of fact, let's make sure they're a dark-skinned black person because we just assume that means that they're actually pro-black and that means they actually love black people. And that mm -hmm. means they actually like being a black person. <laughs> Let's just make all those assumptions right. as if self-hate does not happen all across right. the spectrum. Let's throw them in the presidency. And it does not equal safety. Right. I'm going to deviate from what I traditionally do on the show because... This conversation is more important than whether or not you're a healer and a wounded healer. But I guess the thing is coming up for me, like I wanted you on the show just because I love you, but also just thinking about what we've discussed. How do you take care of yourself? I appreciate that. So, yeah, I definitely am a wounded healer. P.S. I love you, too. <gasps> okay. <laughs> How do I take care of myself? Well, one thing that I found really powerful for me personally is choice. 
So the reason mm. I kind of went off on my tangent and stepped on my soapbox about non-consensual conversations mm-hmm. is that I find the concept of choice to be one that separates when I'm in survival mode from when I'm in like a thriving mode. Mm. When I'm surviving, I don't get choice. When I'm thriving, I do. And I'm accountable for my choices because I'm safe enough to be accountable for them. So Mm. one way that I take care of myself is that I built an entire company around pleasure and around Mm. joy. I could be on panel discussions and going around the country speaking about systematic inequality. Mm. And yeah, I know a thing or three, despite my privileges that I do have and live in, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't bring me joy. So choosing Mm. when I will and when I won't talk about my trauma, being Mm -hmm. marginalized, Mm -hmm. choosing when I'll engage in those conversations takes care of me. Building a company that instead of having super deep conversations all the time and facilitating consciousness around those things instead focuses on play and Mm. recreation that's me taking care of myself because I'm playful as fuck like despite Mm -hmm. oppression I'm a playful motherfucker and Mm. so (laughs) that helps me I take care of myself by being honest about the fact that I'm not a grind person I'm not a hustle person I'm not like oh you gotta make those goals I'm like you gotta take those naps and you gotta eat those snacks so (laughs) Like <laughs> okay, that's the title. Eat those snacks, take those naps. Man. Bam. Like, oh my that, God. That's how I take <laughs> care of myself. I do not prioritize grinding and goals and hustling yeah. and like, let me make my vision board and let me scratch everything off the list within the first two months. I like laying around. I like traveling the world. I like taking walks and doing free things and cooking from people. I like cuddling and I like joking and I prioritize those things in my weekly schedule. I ask myself when it comes to my to-do list for the day, I prioritize, but what's going to give me pleasure? That's how I take care of myself. I put my pleasure first in my life and everything else comes next. Mm. And so it brings me pleasure to wake up and talk to God and pray and meditate and do my spiritual practices. It brings me pleasure to eat delicious food. It brings me pleasure to connect with friends like you. And I prioritize that Mm -hmm. over how much money I'm making and let me clean my house. Like the house is going to get cleaned. Bless God, I have not starved to death. So I'm obviously (laughs) not in the depths of poverty. Mm -hmm. And so I take care of myself by being playful and not letting other people who are more fear-based and who are Mm -hmm. in survival Mm -hmm. mode Mm -hmm. tell me what my priorities are because Mm -hmm. they're their priorities. Also by refusing to be a crisis therapist. So people have asked me like, oh, you know this stuff and you're really calm in crisis. I am. But 50% of my calm in a crisis is a trauma reaction. I've learned that in extreme danger, I've learned to be very calm. And so I don't want to keep putting myself in trauma reactions. Like that's a choice that I'm saying, no. So yeah, making my life as light as humanly possible. In private practice, we get the blessing of being able to choose our own clients. Mm -hmm. So I choose my clients. We have a wonderful like little process through which we figure out, you know, is Mashera and her personality and her skill set going to be the best for what you want to work on? Mm -hmm. And if not, I let them go or I refer them to someone else. Mm -hmm. But it's like my life is built around what do I want? What brings Mm -hmm. me joy? What brings me pleasure? Not what do I have to do? How can I make it and survive? Like I Mm. did that shit growing up in that cult. I don't want to do it no more. So I don't. I just decide not to. So choice is how I take care of myself. That's very inspiring to me because as a business owner, it feels like there isn't a choice to hustle or not, but you Mm. just told me there is. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to sit on that for a while. You kind of just blew my mind right there. Sorry, I'm like... Um, (laughs) 
Okay, let me give credit where credit is due. So I attend a PTSD support group once a week on Wednesday nights, and it really keeps me in check. Like mm-hmm. I am that therapist mm-hmm. who actually keeps a therapist Ugh. or a support group yes. or a workbook. Like I dig deep for my emotional health when I don't fucking feel like it. And yeah. so that support group taught me about mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm just so wise. It's that Either I can take care of myself by choosing what I'll do and what I won't, or I can go into PTSD flashbacks and right. fall apart, right. therefore losing my business and my home and my life. So it's like the choice right. is like, do you want to have a horrible life and suffer? Mm-hmm. Or would you like to not have PTSD flashbacks on today? Right. <laughs> That's why I'm like, okay, I get to choose. I'll choose pleasure. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I want to wrap this up, but I at least want to, if I may, give you a reflection on the wounded healer that I see in you. Sometimes people get a little bristly at the word wounded, but one of the things that often comes out in these conversations is that those of us who choose to use our wounds as information and use them as kind of historical context for how we help others, that's what makes a wounded healer effective rather than coming from our wounds and everything that you just described, like you said before, every, every person of color, marginalized person gets to feel the way that they feel. But for you, you just have this really special vibration and light. You're on the path. Like you are on the path. You're just, you're doing it. And it is such a pleasure to call you a friend. Thank you, Sarah. My goodness. Yeah. You're going to ruin my mascara. (laughs) Well, that's me. (laughs) Thank you. We talked about a lot of amazing stuff. I can't wait to listen back to this, but is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to share with listeners before we sign off? Just that to Indie with Love does cool stuff and support always feels good. So Check out at To Indie With Love on Instagram and check out toindiewithlove.com and see what we're up to. Awesome. Thank you, Mashera. I love you. I love you. Oh, my God. I need this mascara to stay on. I have applied this makeup. Bitch, sorry. (laughs) Damn it. I love you. Thank you so much to Mishara for talking with us today. I really, really hope that this was a valuable experience for everyone just as much as it was for me. And thanks as always to the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art photo, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. For more information about Mishara, you can find it on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye-bye.